Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. Uh, we have Merich Altis Atishop. I think I got it close. Yeah. Cool. Um, cool. Well, uh, we have so much fun stuff to dive into today. Long history of stuff. Actually, before we do, I always like to ask people like, what's your story? How'd you get into games? Because I'm pretty sure like Tilting Point was like your first gig into games, right? It was kind of like a big leap. So yeah, like what's your story? How'd you, how'd you end up here? Um, I mean, growing up, I was a, a crazy gamer. Like I would steal my dad's old PC to play Rayman on it. My brother and I would have issues splitting the PC always <laughs> back and forth. And, you know, for all of my favorite IPs, I some kind of designed that board game or a card game growing up, like Harry Potter board game or something, but just to entertain me and my friends. So games have always been in my life, but uh, professionally, um, by trade, I have, I studied engineering at Columbia University. So for a long time, I thought I was going to do more, something more technical, but mm -hmm. uh, close to my graduation, when pretty much every, most people, most engineers in my class were doing you know, I'm going to get into consulting. I'm going to get into banking. I just didn't really like, I would go to those meetings and never like felt like I belonged there. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to hear uh, my heart and just like follow gaming. And um, I applied to Tilting for it. And I, you know, that was my first position. And I've changed quite a few roles in, in TP2 just to like learn what I like better, the, the industry better. I started with, you know, user acquisition first managing you know big portfolios of all of our published games um and learn the ua scape and then i realized that you know i like the game core bet better than the marketing side of things and um i i basically became the like game evaluation manager in the company with all the candidates coming to tilting point that want to publish their games i would sit down you know look at the data i would play the game play test and then basically decide if we want to sign this game or not, um, which is, you know, quite a big decision. Um, but um, it was a really fun role. But then I just like figured out that product management is my thing. And just like working on a single game, making it better, improving it, making that fun factor grow up. And um, right now I've actually, um, yeah, I'm not in Tilting Point anymore. I'm now in Pixelberry. Uh, we're working on Storyloom which is a new user-generated interactive story platform that we're, uh, you know, that's been in the works for a couple of years, but um, we're going to be launching this. So I have so many questions right now. That's, yeah. um, but, uh, okay, so Story UGC, I've always been a, a fan of like user-generated content and stuff, but I, I feel like these types of games or experiences and things are just, the hardest to like really get going because at the beginning, you know, you have no, no one writing stories and you have no one to re read those stories, even if you did write them. So you got the, the chicken and the egg problem. So I'm, I'm curious, um, and you don't have to divulge all of your secrets or whatnot. And I'm sure every game's a little bit different, but you have that UA mindset from the past plus where you are in the future. Like how could you think about launching a UGC type game in today's world, today's post-IDFA market? Hmm. I think um, at least our strategy has been, you know, Pixelberry has great connections that writers, authors, 
And what they're trying to do is start the journey from reaching out to these writers, making them publish their small stories that are really good in the platform first. So like users as in not just, you know, any regular user, but people who have already established themselves in a way. They're, mm -hmm. they're firstly creating the like groundwork content. And these are really good stories. I I have this one favorite, uh, what was it called? I think it was like, uh, I'm in, more into comedy. And I usually in these interactive yeah. story uh, or story, you know, platforms, it's usually like romance or, you know, that kind of stuff. Here there's um, um, my my monster therapist, which is like every episode, this new monster goes to a therapist and they go through, you know, the problems of this monster. Like the the past episode was, I think, about a werewolf. And then the therapist is like, show me the real you. And then the werewolf turns into a werewolf and stuff <laughs> like all that, you know, funny stuff. So that's been the like content, initial content creation. And what's going to happen, I think, is we're going to be the smartest to, thing to do in this current um, I post IDFA world is to like hit those micro influencers. It's it's the term I'm going to use. But those people who have stories who would like to use this platform, but they don't have a huge reach. But if if we somehow hit a hundred, a thousand or 10,000 10, of those, they will publish on, on this platform and their friends and their community will start reading. And, and that's going to be, I think, bringing up a large uh, number of uh, users in, at least at the first stage. Yeah. And, and you guys already have choices, which is like one of the top kind of story driven type, you know, games that are out there. Like, did you guys do any sort of UGC in that as well? Like, do you have relationships with folks that are there or were all those stories like written in house? I, um, I think not because, you know, I just joined the story loom site a month ago, but I think we just have a lot of authors that we have relationship with in Pixelberry and some of them actually founded Pixelberry. They're mm. the ones we're publishing, not like just users left and right and not like user generated content. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I do know that like in some companies that I've seen, um, you kind of develop an expertise and this seems to be the best way to be successful at making games from what I've seen. I could be very wrong on this because making games is hard, right? Um, but if you look at like Playrix, they kind of found this expertise in these like, you know, match three puzzly casual type games. You look at like my Hoyo or Hoyoverse or whatever they're called today. Um, you know, Genshin Impact was like the breakout game that everyone learned about. But like if you backtrack their different games, like Hunkai third or whatever, you can see the starting points and where they discovered the things that would ultimately become Genshin. And you look at their new game, Hunkai Rail, you can see like, they basically built this like moat of content and different pieces and learnings and stuff and kind of were able to catapult it to the next level. So I was just like, well, I could very well be the case of, hey, we built all these connections with choices. Now we're going to take it to the next level, but we already have that stuff, which makes it very difficult for, you know, any type of competitor to come in and, and do that thing too. Definitely. I mean, there's this, all this like engine that's been built by these companies where, you know, of course it makes sense for them to just reutilize it and make it better. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Okay. So um, before we get into product manager stuff, I want to talk a little bit about game evaluation because I feel like everyone in gaming, myself included, we see a lot of like new games and how, how do you figure out like if this game has it or not? Cause I've played and I've seen some games that like, by all accounts, like this thing should be killing it. 
and then it gets out there and it just like doesn't. And I can't really say why not. Whereas something else that I wouldn't have guessed suddenly just like explodes and takes over the charts. So I'd love to hear all about like game evaluation. Man, doing that job was one of the most fun times of I think my career because it's just there's so much innovation that you're seeing. Uh, but basically, we're not getting the games just, you know, I'm not scouring through the all of App Store to, to just check every game. That's that's an impossible task. But yeah. we had some kind of uh, some scrappers that would um, show us some games that had good RPI. Uh, so to see, you know, which ones are actually getting good, good revenue per install. And, and maybe that's that, that was the starting point for us. And then we would get into, you know, are these people... Um, you know, already published, do they need us? Are these like huge companies? After scrapping those, we would get maybe about five to 10% of these games that are just like made by small size developers that could utilize some kind of publishing or UA help. And then on top of that, we would have these like people reaching out to us just saying, hey, can you check my game, et cetera. But um, the, one of the first things we would look at is just, you know, if they have an MMP, we would definitely just check everything in there, just the revenue retention, uh, cost, every data. And then if they don't, we would use Google Play, App Store, or Connect Data, just to understand, you know, where they are in terms of retention and install. And we had some kind of bars. And if they're never, if they're not above it, we basically say, you know what, uh, I would, I would play the game and I would figure out a few things to improve their day one retention or something. And that usually the problem would be day one retention. So, um, you know, something in their first time user experience that doesn't make sense or them putting, you know, too many monetization elements from the first page um, or, you know, several bugs, et cetera. So um, slowly we would pass people through the next stage and next stage. And at one point we would test their game too, just like do a user acquisition campaign uh, to try to get, you know, a positive ROAS. And, but this was also when I did this was pre-IDFA. So that point of, you know, mm. I was just way more optimistic for gaming. Now it's more of a difficult task for sure. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, were there ever any instances where you passed on a game and it like blew up and you really, like, what did you miss? Um, that was, that's such a good question. We had one and um, I, what was that? Um, idle miner tycoon, uh, oh, yeah. something like that. I think that or one of its, uh, one of its competitors we've missed on, and because they didn't have the good data, and you know we've done the test and it was just not performing. Because we need to like, you know, put it on a database, you know, the data side of things, and we were thinking everything with okay, positive ROAS is what we need, because you know we're as a publisher you're you're splitting the upside with the developer. So we also need to have enough upside minus the cost to like share. We want the developer to be able to get something at least, you know. Um, there were some occasions that there, the game was, you know, minutely pot, uh, profitable, but we had to say, you know what, work on XYZ and we kept that relationship tight. Uh, and, and that game was one of those. And the feeling was, you know, disastrous, of course, because at least how much revenue that game made later on. And, you know, I've got asked questions, for example, but, uh, you know, when you have data to prove your point, I guess. Um, but there are also games that, you know, I have passed just just for a sentimental value, et cetera. 
that, that they were doing something more creative with their um, art, et cetera. So, um, you know, those games have also performed well. Sorry, my cat's invading. Whoop, here you go. <laughs> so let's pretend that it's actually Idleminer Tycoon and you played the game. Like, was there anything about the game that, like, reflecting back that should have stood out to you as like oh this is going to be a good one or on the flip side like have you ever did you publish a game that turned out to be a flop and like on looking back you realize that in playing the game there was something that you noticed or something that you felt that was just off or or not quite there like is it really all about the data or are there some things that you should be thinking or feeling in terms of actually playing the game 100%, but it's just so difficult when you have hundreds of games coming to you. You can add your sentimental input and things and like, you know, add your own perspective. But um, at one point when the number is too high, you just have to make those decisions. But when you say like, are there any games that you regret? You know, uh, know, definitely a few that passed through our net, but then a few that we published that were you know, I don't want to name one, but uh, there was a match three game that we made with an IP and it was just like we were so excited for it. But um, then we realized it just was like not a good mismatch and the, the IP was not so fun and we put a lot of eggs in one basket, so to say. Yeah. So for anyone that is thinking about publishing a new game, maybe in this like post-IDFA world or something like that, like what are some you know, what are two or three things that you'd be thinking about or looking for, I guess, to, you know, find success today? I guess, uh, you know, are they trying to find the publisher? Is that, or are they trying to self-publish? Okay, let's go with, they're trying to find a publisher, for example. And um, I think there's, Tilting Point had a very original model of that UA, um, UA, you know, model where they, where we did the UA, where we, you know, took all the costs and we shared the upside. Uh, that model was copied throughout now. Now uh, there we see a lot of other companies do a similar thing. I think um, definitely one thing you have to find out is, do they have a good genre mix match for you? Like, are, are they, are you going to a publisher, uh, you know, in the hopes of publishing a match three and they have no match three experience, then that's not going to work for you. Uh, definitely try to see at least you coincide in that bigger genre area. And then in terms of, you know, check their other published games um, and see the performance there and, and then take take that step, I think. Um, also seeing, you know, I think one of the biggest powers of a publisher is the futuring or, or you know, platform relations, that kind of a thing. Do you see their games being you know, often spotlighted on Apple or Google Play, or do you see their games on other platforms like Windows Store or Switch? Check that too, because, you know, one good thing TP did was definitely they had, you know, a good featuring mindset, the great relationship, and then publishing um, successful games, you know, maybe second on Windsor, or Windows Store and then on Switch, which we did on, you know, the game mm-hmm. that I'm product manager of uh, SpongeBob Krusty Krugel. And that definitely like goes beyond what IDFA has heard in our game that you might say, but we can publish it on other uh, platforms too. Cool. Very cool. Okay. So let's talk about product management a little bit. So what the heck is a product manager? Because I feel like everyone has a different definition. So 
Yeah. What, what does it mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the mini CEO <laughs> uh, description is, is a funny one. Uh, and it, it often doesn't work when there's more product managers in one project. But basically, um, you know, uh, product managers own that segment that they're on within that game. I was the product manager of a, of a game and I was the sole product manager. So I was the owner of the title, but there might be, you know, in my, in this, uh, in pixel Bay, I'm just managing live ops and monetization. And I'm basically responsible from all the success and the failure. I'm trying to facilitate, you know, the connections with leadership, getting approvals, getting people together, uh, writing the specs, um, you know, getting everyone in a meeting, uh, but also I'm not doing production work might one might say often that that line is a little like um shifty producer product manager sometimes there's there's only one sometimes they do separate works uh it depends on the company too i think yeah sometimes i see it interchangeably used with like i don't know if you guys have like an executive producer or a game director as well um yeah producers but no not like game director we had that in tilting point a game director or a or a studio head in something. Cool. Okay. So but for folks that are maybe like wanting to get into product management or wanting to be a better product manager, like what are two to three like core skills and competencies that you think like they should be like working on or, you know, seeking to learn? I think when we're, one one thing I'm going to say is um, game product management and, and non-game product management are quite different. And I have a friend who's a product manager in Google, and we talk about the job that we do. And they're, they're like 80% different, you know, that maybe 20% they coincide in that like we were spec writing, et cetera. But as a PM in gaming, I think you feel a little bit, uh, you feel more, Shoot, you you do more roles than just uh just a tech PM. Um, you dabble with data, you dabble with production at one point. You definitely, if there's no game designer, you do competitor research, etc. Um, there's a lot more that you're doing. Um, and um, to be a good game PM, I think one important thing is just uh, you know, whenever I'm watching TV, uh, my boyfriend hates this, but I I basically have always, I'm on my phone and I'm playing competitive games. Like, not like half focusing there, half focusing on my phone. I'm downloading new games, you know, top 100 games on App Store. I just go through them to see what clicks. I think one good PM in the gaming ecosystem can do is just like a lot of research. And there is, you know, games that come up maybe every 20 or 30 games that I play that provide a different mechanic or a different monetization style. Etc. And those are the ones that I'm like, aha, uh-huh, let me just take a note of this and then and note it down so so I can employ it better. And then I think a good PM also just maybe this is everyone, but they need to have good you know, Like if you come across something very interesting or in, in a presentation or in a call with your teammates, they say something that makes you tick, you have to take that note and then you know, rehash it later. Maybe that's going to be a product idea. Maybe you grow it to a bigger thing. Those are the things like ideas hardly stick. Uh, so we need to do a better job as PMs to like uh, hash them, also like bring them up. Uh, and then maybe lately I've been, this is like, this is 
my like last year and on, I've been doing this more, but I've been talking to my players more, my customers more. Like we we had a Discord on on SpongeBob, and uh, I've been reaching out to our VIP players, our you know uh, top one percent players, just to see what they like about the game, what they do not like about the game, what's going stale, etc. For example, we had um, a few you know, notes from our, our um, players that the game was kind of running stale in terms of the modes we have. So we created this new game mode uh, that kind of matched um, uh, choose your own adventure with a um, like a dungeon crawler kind of a thing. Uh, and it was like a, uh, you start from a node on the left and you pick which path you want to take and you get different power-ups and you play different kitchen levels, etc. cetera. Uh, and they get hard... The, uh, easy, etc., cetera, uh, and, and the user picks the journey they take. And this definitely like revitalized uh, uh, the seasonal events we were doing for a long time. That's awesome. Okay, so I have a lot of questions here from that. Um, so you, you mentioned like, a good gaming PM is kind of always playing like other people's games and stuff. Um, what's an example of a monetization tactic that you uncovered in somebody else's game that you were like, oh, that's like super awesome. I should make note of that. Mm. Um, let me see. I, I don't remember the game, but one game that I played, for example, didn't have um, just a free and a premium battle pass, but they had a, a premium plus battle pass, like three mm. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, this was a this was a more hardcore game, so you can see that people would spend more in these kind of games. Like it was a more, I think it was a character collection, and it was sci-fi based uh, one. Maybe mm -hmm. it's a, one of the Star Treks, maybe. But um, this really worked for for them because uh, there's a community of users who are down to spend more, maybe five or ten dollars more per battle pass cycle, and this is that extra, you know. Uh, feedback that they're looking for to spend. That was an interesting one. Um, let me see if there's any more that I can remember. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, let me think on it. Maybe I'll remember a few more things. Yeah. Um, well, you already talked about that mechanic of, I forget what it's called in AFK Arena, but it's like where you go into the dungeon and you like progress from battle to battle and you get little boosts and power-ups and stuff. Um, and you guys did that version within uh spongebob uh, which is cool um but do you have any any other examples of mechanics that you've found in other games that you're like oh this is super cool this could solve like this problem back in my game i think one of the biggest learning that we had the past year and maybe two years is that mini games the mini games uh definitely not only help bring the ua cost down because you can do you know just ua specific to that mini game but also they provide uh, an engagement, a daily engagement to the user. On SpongeBob, we integrated uh, like a, a match 3D kind of a new game. I don't know if you know that, but do you know that game match 3D where there's like a lot of pile of items on, on your board and you're trying to mm -hmm. bring them and then it's their match, they leave the pile. Um, that kind of game we've uh, constructed. And um, at, at, I think before I was leaving, they were, uh, we were going to, implement it. Mini games is the one that we definitely thought about like a daily engagement way. Yeah. Is that more on the user acquisition side of things? So you can like show different pseudo fake ads or whatnot, or is that 
actually more of like a live ops type event that you've seen? I think this uh, this was a daily event that we were planning that we saw that, you know, luckily for SpongeBob, your your CPIs are low because this is a well-known IP. I, uh, usually CPI was not our problem. We were trying to always increase engagement and retention. And this is one of the targets we had for that. Hmm. Cool. Yeah, we've seen a lot of people using UserWise to kind of like customize the ad that they saw to actually the mini game version that they get once they start up the game or different things like that. So I was curious. Yeah. That's cool. I haven't really thought of them as like a a driver of engagement and stuff, but it makes sense. Very Mm -hmm. cool. Okay. Um, You talked about the importance of taking notes. Um, What have you found that works well for like, you know, taking notes? Like, do you drop them in like a personal Slack or Notion or... What do you use and why does it work for you? Um, I think I just use my Apple notes on my phone for, for most things. Um, and then, uh, I, you know, every week, I'm not, no, I'm going to lie if I say it. Every month or so, I, I sit down and, you know, get my notes from there to a drive. That's the, and then that's when I decide to, if I, you know, want to work on that idea or if I want to like, put that in the, you know, backlog, et cetera. Uh, and then one thing that I've been doing uh, on meetings is that um, Google, if you if you are connected, if you have a Google um, calendar, if your, you know, companies through that, uh, you can start a docs and you can add um, like meeting notes. And I have this whole like, you know, notes uh, folder with every meeting's notes with people. And I, and I, I see the date, I see who I spoke to, I see action items, I see bullet points. That's been a big lifesaver for me. Very cool. Okay, so you talked about coming up with these ideas for monetization tactics, mechanics, things like that. Here's a problem that I personally struggle with, and I believe other PMs have this problem as well. How do you vet ideas? And maybe like rephrasing it a little bit. How do you prioritize something when you already have a thousand other priorities on your like Jira list? Like, how do you figure out what you should be doing today and tomorrow and next week? Yeah. I mean, and this is one of my favorite topics, prioritization, because um, I think there's a way to quantify it. And when I'm going to go, I'm going to go more into the future side of things rather than like every small A-B test, et cetera. I, we can go. Maybe, yeah, that's just perfect. But like, let's, let's talk about bigger ideas. Um, I've been slowly, I've been a like user motivation convert for the past two years. I use the uh, Quantic Foundry, like motivation scales. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, but you know, like a competition, community, strategy, power, story. These are all kind of like user motivations. And what I've done is if there's, and I, I actually have a, have made a talk on this in, in Seattle, uh, and I can share this with you, but, um, we basically rank all of these, uh, for our game. I think every, every company, every game maker should do this. Like in a discovery matter for our users, does fantasy matter, the story matter. If you give, you know, a point from 10, um, first you, you you know, grade your, your, um, game. And then you also grade your, uh, users. Maybe you, you work with your users to understand, you know, as a cooking game lover, which, what is their motivators playing this game? You understand them better. And then you're trying to close the gap. Maybe your game just doesn't have enough challenge for a, for a cooking game genre, uh, you know, standards, but your users want that. So 
next of your future should definitely cater to that challenge motivation. Or maybe uh, your game is missing that design element. And, and that's when you should, you know, cater to that. And all of these future ideas, I also, you know, score for, from out of 10, you know, they, these, these points. And then I add them up. I, I, you know, weigh them, the different tactics. And then I also talk to my engineers and artists to get a, you know, production cost and production time. And then by dividing these scores, you get a, a, a good indicator of your priorities. That's the system I've had for the past years. That's very interesting. So do you, do you kind of start with like understanding your players of like, hey, my players fall into like these two categories. They're like competitive and they're social. So we don't care about these other things. Um, or do you try to get like a little bit of each to make it more like applicable to larger player bases? If you know what I'm saying. Mm. Um, I think it depends on how, how hardcore your game is. If, if your game is all about competition and challenges, uh, I, I don't think it makes sense for you to add a story uh, component to it. But if you, if your game is, you know, on, on more of a casual side of things, you want to hit that lower CPI, you want to hit more users. And that's when you think, I think you can a little diverge and try new things. Uh, but I think again, the biggest. Uh, learning I had is talk to your users and ask what they want. You know, our game already has a lot of strategy elements and fantasy elements. Do we need more competition, more community, more discovery? What, you know, talk to them and maybe send a survey to understand what they require. Um, yeah. Interesting. So I saw a post from my buddy Steve Fowler yesterday on LinkedIn, which is Interesting. So he was talking about his time at Blizzard yeah. and how his boss at the time would always have them ask a series of questions to developers on the team. They'd say, describe your game. What are the core player benefits of your game? What do you want players to feel when they're playing your game? What core values do you believe in your game? And what is the core idea or essence of the game? And generally he found that nine times out of 10, the responses were just all over the board completely. And so it's like, okay, if our team that's been working on this thing for who knows how long can't even get aligned on this stuff, how do we expect our players to get there? Um, do you think those types of questions would be good for the overall game and also maybe good like at the feature level? Um, definitely. I think some of these questions could be combined into one. Mm -hmm. I, I think maybe the, I, I definitely respect his method. But maybe combining a few of these questions to get to that core of the question better. Uh, and that way, maybe there won't be that many differences. Um, you know, you know, core values of the game or the core essence of the game can, you know, cater to that similar answer or different answers depending on the player. Um, definitely, I think asking similar questions about, about the feature. Uh, what is what does the user get? Like what's the entertainment fun factor is is a big thing. And I've been listening to a lot of your, you know, uh, podcasts and more, you know, a lot of people bring this up, like what makes the game tick for the user? It's all about the core loop. And, uh, that's one of the discoveries one needs to have as a, as a, as a game maker for sure. That's great. Okay. Um, I was also kind of wondering. Um, you mentioned kind of talking to players, especially like VIP players and stuff. Um, I imagine that as, 
you know, some developers or designers, especially the introverts among us, which tend to be a lot of us, um, and I think about having to go and, and find these players and talk to them, like they're probably got some butterflies in their stomach right now. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, like, how did you go and find these VIP players? How did you talk to them? How did you, do you orient it? So you weren't just like, oh, I talked to this person once and now I'm getting like hit with like a million things from them, you know, throughout the week. And I just feel completely overwhelmed. I can't even do my job, you know, at the core. Um, what's, what's a method that you found that works well for talking to players? Cause I think everyone can agree that there's value in it, but how do you do it in a, a manageable way? Yeah. Uh, I think. What we had was, <laughs> sorry, uh, we had a Discord um, for the channel and it was uh, uh, for the game and it was very well moderated by our community members. And um, we had, you know, a channel called Ask, Ask Developers. And there is always a few people that want to engage with the developers most. And I think just having a mental note of these people uh, is definitely going to help. And then we would send a survey maybe in that channel uh, for for some user feedback, and we would ask their Discord title, Discord name, and we would recognize those patterns. You know, those who comment a lot would give us a lot of feedback. And sometimes I would, you know, go out of my way and just message them. I would be like, "Can I ask you a few more questions?" I think that's the way to go if you are a little like um, introspective. Uh, you can you can do more. Uh, you can ask. You know just questions one at a time you don't have to have a call like what we're doing right now um and 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 definitely like um come from a developer mindset and try to better the game uh but we've had some occasions where you know the the, the players just asking me a lot more questions about the you know roadmap and asking you know gems from me etc and 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 that, that's when i usually draw the line i you know often I would I would just say a kind note, but I would end it there, and then like um, the, you know, the community um, members would often help me with those. Gotcha. So here's a way that I've heard. Um, I think my buddy Javier Barnes was the first person that recommended this to me, um, and he said what he found worked well is it's great that you have that like ask a dev channel, but for most people working at the game, they don't have time to just sit on that channel all day to see the questions that are there. Um, so what he did is he would say, okay, every Friday at like 1 PM or 3 PM or whatever, I'm going to spend an hour like on this call. And if you guys want to come talk to me, you can come talk. This is the time. This is when you do it. And it was really good for him because he could have those conversations with players. It was time box. So he knew when it was going to be, um, it was also kind of nice for them too, because, you know, with that random discord channel, they might put a comment in there. They don't know if I'm going to get a response to that in five minutes, in five days, five weeks, like, but by having that, like, Hey, I can just go talk to them on Friday. So I'll just do that. I know when they're going to be there, what they're going to be doing. I can come in and like talk to them. Um, and that seemed to work really well for, um, their game that they're working on. Um, curious, you think that would work well across other games and genres? I think that's a great idea. I think. Uh, I have actually had the chance to work with Javier and he told me about this too. Um, uh, it makes sense, but when your community grows a lot, like SpongeBob, we were talking about a huge number of users in the Discord and, and uh, just bombarding with questions. I think that's the time when, you know, we've had one of these things, you know, in person kind of a call with the channel, but um, 
And let me tell you, we get a lot of kids commenting random things, <laughs> a lot of swear words, a lot of like, just, you know, things you don't want to answer, or you don't want to acknowledge. And then you're made, you're giving that a platform too. Um, and that's often risky. And with our game, you know, SpongeBob, it, it was a huge IP and it's a Nickelodeon, a children's IP. We had to moderate these Discord channels often. So if you're, if you can really afford that, maybe if you, if your reach is smaller, I think I say go with that. But sometimes I think having, you know, just seeing what's been asked, you know, just filtering through all that horrible this <laughs> and then going with, um, you know, correct answer is the way to go. Yeah. What about like segmented messages and invites to players to be like, hey, I only want to send this message to invite people to talk to me that are guild members of guilds that have a rank over this level, like the top 100 or something. Or um, I want to talk to these VIP people so that you kind of significantly slim, slim down that list of players that you're talking to, I guess. That was our VIP group. Uh, we've created a VIP group from some of our high spenders, but also some of our top you know, engage your users. And we've combined them about, you know, very small group, uh, a thousand people or something. We've created a, a specific, you know, channel for them. And that's when, if I really needed help about the future, et cetera, that's the community that I would speak to. And of course, we have had a similar thing, you know, um, uh, we we were using Lean Plum at the time, uh, you know, campaign structure, just like hitting those users, making them, you know, enter their emails, go, you know, go on Discord to join the channel, et cetera. And uh, of course, not a lot of them were joining at the end, but that, mm. that all, all group that did, um, we kept tight. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. Um, so you've kind of recently jumped from just like your standard product manager to a senior product manager. Like What's that like? What's that kind of mean for you? Do you have a team of PMs under you now? Like, what sort of challenges have come with that? Um, no, I uh, I think one of the best things as a for for a PM is to like usually a PM is a lone wolf. That's also like the 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 one that brings the team together. Weirdly enough, and and um, I'm not at a role right now that I'm managing people. But uh, in my, you know, as a senior product manager or my as a product manager in Tilting Point, I managed a huge game with 80 million insults. Like there is no one above me really managing me. That's no. from our studio head. Here, I'm just now focusing on the monetization on live ops side of things. It depends really on like the company needs and like how much they can afford and how how many, you know, what's their headcount, et cetera. Um, I, I really don't believe in titles. After seeing that, you know, I, I, I think it, it matters more like a person's um, just like impact and also years of tenure, maybe in gaming and not only in product, too, because I think, you know, my experience as a UA manager, game evaluation manager, those were not just like, you know, years that I've wasted that I learned a lot. I learned all the KPIs. I, you know, so much that I still utilize my UA knowledge to this day. So. Um, I, you know, game years is, is I think what matters as a product manager. Gotcha. Okay. We're getting down in time here. So I'm going to try to squeeze everything else in. Um, so you worked with a really big IP SpongeBob 
Um, tell me what it's like working with an IP. I imagine that there are some benefits and there's probably some like, you know, hassles and downfalls that come with it. So yeah. yeah. Tell me all about working with an IP. When does it make sense? When would you avoid it? Yeah. I mean, uh, this is a great, um, you know, conversation topic. Uh, it does take a village. Like you cannot manage an IP as a small studio, unfortunately. That's why having a publisher behind you helps. Um, IPs have crazy lists of requirements from you, from assets, from the words that you can use, from specific, you know, SpongeBob looks weirdly. SpongeBob should not be angled at that point. SpongeBob's nose looks big. You know, there's all these things that you have to acquire a lot of knowledge through time. And, and uh, thankfully, our creative team uh, did do that. And, and for, you know, I think it's been four years now, we've been acquiring all that information. And now, you know, at this point, we, we work, we're also doing a second SpongeBob title. They were at Tilting Point. Uh, it's, it's, more, it's easier to add a second game from six same IP rather than doing like five different IPs too, because that's all of a learning process. Like the creative approval process would really slow us down, Tom. Like it would be, um, and this is no, this is not because of Nickelodeon. It's just a lot of back and forth, you know, like we would send them the finished assets. They would come back with comments. We would send them again. If you don't have the IP, this would take you just a week with the IP, two, three weeks. So mm. that was the biggest problem. But I mean, the, the benefits of an IP, especially some, some, an IP like SpongeBob, which is like, as an idea centered around fun and like everything about SpongeBob yeah. is fun. It's, it's such a huge thing. Same with like Marvel, you know, there's these IPs that are very like, I think studios should be, feel really lucky that they have it. Um, uh, it's, it, it really was a blessing working on a game like that. That's great. Yeah. So benefits, it sounds like it can bring you a lot of users already has some like things built into it. Downfall is that it probably adds more time to your workflows and how you're doing things or whatnot. Makes sense. Okay. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the Turkish uh, gaming ecosystem. So, you know, there's been some crazy big, you know, games that have come out of Turkey, you know, with Peak Games and now Royal Match and maybe this uh, new one that they're launching to. I forget what it's called. Um, so, yeah, talk to me about Turkey. What's going on there? What's going on there? And so funny, uh, as soon as this boom started happening, I left the country. This is the funniest thing. You know, I wish I wish I was there to experience it. But luckily, I, I have a lot of contacts there. And uh, I've been reached out a lot, especially when I was at Tilting Point, just for publishing needs, etc. There's a lot of, um, you know, a few years ago when the boom first started, it was just uh, a few companies really... Uh, getting it and getting lucky too, I think is a big, big, uh, you know, and then there's a lot of learnings coming from that peak um, Rolex uh, groups and then them going, starting their own companies like Dream, uh, Spike definitely helped. Um, I've been, I've had the chance to like consult a company called Jive Games recently. They're working on their own kind of game. Uh, everyone's really trying to make it. And, and the thing is now, the whole country is aware of it. So universities are training people to, to get into gaming. Uh, developers are just, you know, uh, more and more getting more specific and, and emphasis is on like, you know, tech of games, Unity, et cetera. Artists are coming from 
Uh, a lot of ad agency artists are now joining uh, game companies, for example, which which uh, one of my agency friends told me, we can't you know hire talent because game companies can pay more and then they they work less, better hours there. And I'm like, you know, they they, they deserve that. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, um, a final topic. I know you do a lot of stuff with the LGBTQ stuff um, and working in gaming. So yeah, tell me all about that stuff. You have yeah, to. I, um, I, you know, as 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 every minority, I think we need to be represented better. Uh, um, I, you know, there's a few organizations that there that are representing gaming professionals, but um, we've started the LGBTQ plus gaming professionals uh, LinkedIn community. If anyone's following it, feel free to join. Um, I just think that, um, you know, earlier in my career, I was, I didn't come out and it was a big, big um, burden on me. And then and, and I realized like how, you know, I was, I was being very careful uh, at the workplace and I, you know, I've had some small incidents too. And then after that, I realized, you know, this could all be prevented if I'm just like, if I come out and be, be open with, with who I am. And not that I bring my sexuality into the office. It's just like, sure. just easy. You're not hiding anything. I, um, one example I can give you is, uh, if you, of of you know, gay colleagues or lesbian colleagues, I, I would invite them to this LinkedIn group. And they're saying, I cannot join this because this is public. They will see it, et cetera. And they, they, they would like think about this a lot. And I'm like, imagine this burden lifted off you. Like that's, that's the, that's the, you know, beauty of it. And I'm, I'm lucky that I've got to that place that I can do that. And I know a lot of people cannot really uh, do that because they're, they live in XYZ com country, et cetera. I, you know, I'm hoping, especially with, with, you know, groups like, what we have, the other communities, we get to that point where it's going to be just an afterthought. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. So what's your take on, okay, so this could be controversial and this is going to be fun. Um, so I feel like um, lately in like shows and stuff that we've launched or like watched or whatnot, it seems like there's a lot more LGBTQ type content than there are actually like people in the world. So like, let's say 5% of the population is actually gay, but like, it seems like sometimes the content is that to like 50%, which, you know, I'm fine with like representing minorities and all that kind of stuff. But um, what's your take on like, what's the right balance where you as a minority actually feel represented? Like, for you know game creators that are trying to think about how do i balance this stuff so that all of my players feel you know good about my content like is there a right amount or a right line or how does that kind of great question and i've been noticing that too like kind of like an overrepresentation of lgbtq but we have to also keep in mind that you know maybe in our circles we we come across this content more but maybe 90 percent of the content that we don't see is actually not catering towards that. Maybe the, the channels we watch, the media we consume just shows that more. And maybe that alone will balance the scale more. Um, what, in gaming though, like uh, I've, I've talked to a lot of, you know, game designers, story writers, and some of them were really reticent about putting, you know, LGBTQ characters because what mm -hmm. if they react, you know, aggressively, et cetera. And then 
there's another sect that almost uses uh, gay characters. I've seen some UA videos about this as that trope, you know, that very like feminine or very annoying uh, LGBTQ person. And they, they, the UA campaign is all about that. It's almost like a fake ad kind of ad. ad. Yeah. I think the best way to do is, is, is like uh, Love and Pies does this. They have a, a, a gay couple. I think one of the main characters' uncles is gay. And, and one UA video was just about the uncle and his boyfriend and they discover something and you know they're in love but them being gay is not the forefront it's not about that it's more like there's these are characters that happen to it's be just people. it's just natural it's just like it's not, yeah yeah it was just about them i i think that's the representation we need more so what i find interesting with like story bloom and user-generated content though is like i feel like you have so many more opportunities to handle these things where like users can opt into the different types of things that they want to. It's, it's almost like YouTube, right? Like if I want to watch a video about any kind of probably pretty much anything, I could probably find it on YouTube and watch it. Right. Yeah. Uh, I would imagine that in the future, any kind of story that I want to read, I probably will be able to find it on Storybloom and, you know, consume that content, which um, I think it just makes the, the stickiness and the personalization of, you know, the overall game, so much better because I can read the stuff that I want to read when I want to read that because there, you know, might be a time where I want to consume LGBT content, but there might be a time that I want to consume something else um, and I can do that. So that's yeah. cool. I think the, the YouTube uh, example is a great one where we have get a lot of inspiration from YouTube, from Roblox, these, these kind of communities where you, you might start from a video and the video leads to another video. And then now you have a main feed that feeds you. I mean, my YouTube is mostly Marvel Snap, you know, specific like things catering to me. And then yeah. want to have a similar thing in Story Loom too, like specific genres you have, specific like art styles you like, and maybe uh, uh, that leading to another, et cetera. And that's like the future of the project for sure. That's amazing. Very cool. So I know we're about out of time here and we are on the Master Retention Podcast. So I do have one question for you, of course. And that is, you know, what's one tip or trick or lesson you've learned over the years to, you know, boost your tension? Like, how do you keep your players, you know, hanging around for longer? Yeah, I think I'll go back to that, like, um, motivation scoring tactic. Uh, I think every game maker should do that. They should just uh, meet their players. They should evaluate their game, see where they lie in that motivation index, and then try to cater to that. That's the, like... The, the the motivation that brings the user every day, whatever core, you know, the, whatever core loop they built, if that doesn't cater to it, or if it could do more, for example, destruction is that is that an interesting motivation. Like some people just want to go in and destroy things. Some games are like that. And if your core loop is missing that, add more boxes or you know explosions that you can burst, etc. In your game that cater to that. And there's you know hundreds more examples like. I think you just described uh, Royal Match and and why it has taken over so well. It's like yeah. so many like beautiful things. All right, I love it. Well, Merch, thank you so much for joining us. If people do have you know any questions for you, is there a good way to get in contact with you? Um, my LinkedIn, um, my website, which is marriageattheshelf.com, is where they can reach out to me. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, man. Awesome. See you, man.